acknowledgement of country, I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, work and study, the Awabakal people. I extend that acknowledgement to the land on which our listeners meet on. I pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging. Listener discretion is advised. The topics we discuss in this podcast may be confronting or disturbing to some. If today's episode causes you any distress, please contact Lifeline or the university's free counselling service. It should be noted that this podcast aims to educate and inform our listeners and in no way does it support or promote the behaviours discussed. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Espresso Warriors Katara. Remember to eat, drink and be social at Espresso Warriors Katara. Welcome back to the ULN Crim podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Krebet, and today I'm joined by Peter Gogarty, and we're exploring the mind of a pedophile. Peter, how are you? I'm very well, That's Izzy. Good. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. Mm. Shall we get started? Let's. So what is a pedophile? Yeah, I think um, there's an important distinction to make here because a, a pedophile is somebody who has a paraphilia, and um, a pedophile in particular is attracted to children and they would normally be, be, be prepubescent children. So really, um, and tragically, anything from birth up until about 12 or 13, when children start to enter into puberty and into their adolescence, there's another term that's less used and generally sort of pedophilia is taken to mean um, anyone that sexually assaults any child under the age of 18. But, but technically, once um, a child is in that puberty area, um, it's normally called hebophilia. So it's look, it's a bit of a, um, a bit of a distinction, a technical distinction. But most people would call a pedophile anyone that sexually assaults any any child under the age of eighteen. So anyone that hasn't met that legal um, age of maturity, if you like. Um, do you want me to talk a little bit about um, what to to be diagnosed as a pedophile? Yes, what that so might mean? Yeah. So I think. The first thing to say about that is that even though pedophilia is recognised as an illness, it's not an excuse for behaviour that is effectively criminal. It is criminal and pedophiles know what they're doing is wrong. So whilst they might say, look, this is a diagnosable illness, it's not an excuse. So as we've just talked about, there's we're effectively talking about someone with a sexual attraction to anyone under the age of 18, typically they would need to be themselves and adults with a four-year age difference. So, for example, um, a 16-year-old who is offending against a 12-year-old wouldn't necessarily be called a pedophile. There's another paraphilia going on there, more than likely. So, typically we're talking about an adult who's offending against somebody that's at least four years younger than them. Um, Typically, these people... Um, exhibit this kind of behaviour or attraction to children over a prolonged period of time. Um, And it's probably important to say, even though the numbers are difficult to ascertain, that not everyone who is sexually attracted to children will necessarily go on to offend against children. So does that that give us sort of a broad overview of... Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, You said that pedophilia is a paraphilia. Would you Mm. mind explaining what a paraphilia is? Yeah, so a a lot of people would be aware of... um, the American Psychiatric Association's um, document on psychiatric illnesses. Um, 
most people just call it DSM-5. Um, it's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illnesses. Um, it, it's got a whole category called paraphilias, which are effectively sexual disorientations. So um, it's not just people having a sexual attraction to children. Um, people might have a sexual attraction to animals. Um, they could have all sorts of um, specific interests, uh, sexual interests that the rest of us would say that's outside the realms of normal sexual interest and behaviour. Yeah, so usually a paraphilia when you're a pedophile, you usually possess two. So what is yep. typically coupled with pedophilia as a paraphilia? Yeah, look, sometimes um, there, there could be um, an interest in objects um, as well. Um, it could be mentioned, you know, there's a distinction between pedophilia and hebophilia. Some pedophiles, they cross over that, that gap. Some may have a sexual attraction to, um, they might be same-sex attracted or opposite-sex attracted, but they have a particular interest in certain sex acts. So as with most things to do with pedophilia, there is no real consistency about that. It's a, it's a bit like, you know, the old sort of um, you know, when I was growing up, it was like, watch out for, you know, that dirty old man in the in the raincoat. Well, pedophiles are not typically dirty old men wearing raincoats. You know, they they are a very diverse group of people with lots of other interests that may be completely healthy and they've got this aspect to their personality. Yeah, so it's kind of like an individualistic thing. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. very much. And and look, there are some some consistencies as in you will get pedophiles that are very opportunistic. So if, um, say, for example, I'm, I'm aware of um, a pedophile priest who any opportunity with any child didn't particularly seem to matter what gender the child was, but if they were under a certain age and they were potentially available to him right now, he would take that opportunity. I know other pedophiles who have had a long history of um, very much targeting the sorts of victim they're interested in. For example, one who was interested in um, uh, pubescent boys. They needed to have blonde hair, blue eyes. They needed to be from a particular family type. So very, very um, deliberate behaviour and a lot of grooming behaviour. So as I said, it's almost, um, apart from those kind of broad categories, it's a very individualised um, illness. And although they're individual, do they all possess the same trait? So with the criteria in the DSM-5, mm. do they all have the same yes. traits? Yes, yeah. so that's the thing, that's the common element, I, I think, that the difference in age, the attraction to children, and again, there there is an important distinction between the attraction and the behaviour because people can be sexually attracted to children and not act out on that, and we can talk in a minute about what, what might lead someone from the attraction into the behaviour. Um, even you know, even though that's not particularly settled, but yes, those those kind of criteria around um, being attracted to children, um, the the length of time that that attraction stays in the person's um, psyche. So um, usually with pedophiles, it's a very long term attraction. Um, typically, uh, particularly when people get into offending, what normally stops their offending is they get caught or they get too old yep. to offend again. So. So those kinds of criteria, they're the ones that stay the same. And what are kind of the, I guess, personality traits to look out for within a pedophile? <laughs> yeah, well, again, here's the trick, because we're not looking for a dirty old man in a raincoat. We're looking 
for any adult and and predominantly men, but it can be um, female as well, female offenders. And if we if we say that we're now talking about people that have gone from the attraction to acting out on that attraction, what you're typically looking for is what I would call, what most psychologists would call, is grooming behaviour. So how is it that a pedophile finds themselves um, being able to take advantage of the opportunity to offend against that child? And as I said, sometimes that will be just um, the, the, the simple availability of a particular child. But typically what people need to look out for is any adult who is in a profession where they have a lot of access to children, it might be quite legitimate access to the child, by the way, so I don't want to, um, I don't want to besmirch the characters of everyone that, that works with children because there's a lot of very legitimate reasons for doing that. But if you've got someone who is working with children, has fairly much unfettered access to those children, very little accountability about how they spend their time with those children or child, if you see somebody that out of the normal, their normal sort of work environment, they might be spending an inordinate amount of time with a group of children around them, then you'll see things like one or other of those kids being given special treatment. There's a particular child that's the last one in the car when the, when the, the offender's driving them all home at night, those kinds of things. So um, gift giving, that kind of thing. So what you're looking out for because these people are charismatic. They are not, as I said, not only are they not the dirty old man in the raincoat, but they are usually very, very good at convincing everybody what a, what a wonderful person they are. So they're the sorts of things that's very tricky, but if any child is, be, is receiving special attention, then to me that's a red flag. What you're saying there is that it's usually someone that the child will know why yes. do you think that throughout childhood we're always warned about stranger mm. danger and not to look out for people that we know? Yeah, it's interesting, Izzy. I think because, you know, certainly in my era that was that was the message, you know, stranger danger, don't get into cars with strangers, um, but it was all right to get in the car with um, your teacher, with the, with the local priest or minister. Um, that's how a lot of people found themselves in harm's way. And, and I think it's worth mentioning too that a lot of offenders are in people's immediate family circle. They're not just people who you might know incidentally. But I think part of the reason that people haven't wanted to talk about that is because it's it's so close to home that people can't deal with it. Like there's, a, there's this kind of disconnect, like this cognitive disconnect between um, the how, how horrendous most people feel about a child being sexually assaulted and then somebody thinking, well, Uncle Fred's doing that, or um, it, you know, it's the it's the school teacher or the swimming coach. There's just such a disconnect. You know, people don't want to believe it. And as I said, these people normally are grooming the family as well as the children. And what are the statistics like? Yeah, look, um, off the top of my head, I, I I couldn't say exactly. It's a relatively, in the scheme of things, it's a relatively small number of people who have this sort of paraphilia. Um, and then a small number of them go on to offend. The difficulty is that these people don't stop offending. So you can end up, unless, as I said, unless someone's caught or they get to an age where they can't offend anymore, one offender could have hundreds, literally hundreds of victims over their lifetime. And that's what we need to be on, on the watch for because um, 
the fact that somebody might have a sexual attraction to children, that then turning into the behaviour, the behaviour is likely to go on indefinitely. So, um, and this is something that I've struck a lot over the course of my career where people have an inkling that something's not right and they don't say anything or they think that their child might be at risk, their, their own child, they'll extract their child from that environment but then leave that offender alone. They don't report it to anybody. That offender will inevitably go looking for more victims. Why do you think that is that people are so afraid to speak up but remove their own child from Look, the situation? I don't, know, I don't know about you but I've heard so many times people talking about some social issue, some really important issue, and they say, why doesn't somebody do something about that? My view is, why don't I do something about that? Yeah. You know, and I, I would encourage everybody, if you've got this sort of suspicion, and not just necessarily about um, people offending against children, but if you've got a suspicion that somebody is doing the wrong thing, then turning, turning away and pretending that you didn't see it or that it's not my problem, potentially you're perpetuating somebody's criminal activity. So I would really encourage everybody that's listening, if, particularly around child sexual assault, if you think that there's a problem, it is far better to speak up because personally I would not want um, the harm done to children on my conscience. The thought that um, I saw something that I think this is not right didn't speak up about it and then discover years down the track that that person had committed multiple offences, that's a terrible thing to have on your conscience. Mm, that's a brilliant answer, Peter. Yeah, thank you. I think something that's really surprising to a lot of people is that pedophilia is genetic. Can you talk a bit about that, please? Yeah, look, at, and again, this is not to say that uh, that we should accept that pedophilia is it's an illness and therefore we shouldn't treat it as a criminal behaviour. But there is a genetic difference in pedophiles. Now, I'd, I'm not sure, not, not being a biologist, I don't understand the brain chemistry enough. I mean, it's an area that I'm fascinated by mm. and trying to do more research on and more just for my own benefit to try and understand what is it about a pedophile, what is it about their brain chemistry that is different to the rest of us because it, it is different. So what causes that and... If, if we know that, can we do anything about it? But more importantly for me is if we know that that's the case and we know that some people will have the attraction but don't progress to the, the pedophilic behaviours, what is it that triggers that, um, the commencement of the behaviour? And in all of my work on this, and, and, and look, so many people are trying to understand this condition, but... Usually there is something in the person's early development, um, their own childhood, where that, that attraction is triggered into behaviour. So it could be that the child themselves has been, um, or, or the offender rather, as a child has been assaulted themselves, sexually assaulted. Uh, that's again not to say that everyone that's ever assaulted as a child goes on to become an offender because they simply don't. It's, it's probably maybe 5 or 10% of people who've been abused themselves become an abuser. But you'll often find that there are typical things in the history of the offenders. So they've either come from an incredibly strict environment um, where their whole development was repressed. Quite often their sexual development was repressed and sometimes violently. So um, 
children, for example, brought up in a um, very devoutly religious home may actually suffer physical um, aggression by one or other parent when they start to express themselves sexually. So those kinds of suppressed psychological development seem to be the trigger for people acting out their attraction, their sexual attraction to children. So some of that could be it's a psychological state that they've they've found themselves stuck in, so that sexually their sexual development is still in their early teen years. It could also be that the only people that allow them to get physically close and emotionally close are children, and that triggers the behaviour. Just to kind of picture that, I imagine that the pedophilia gene within the brain is activated when exposed to a certain amount of trauma, yes. I suppose? Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and, that, and again, I, I don't profess to be a biologist or a psychologist, but that seems to be the case with a lot of people. I mean, there are psychopaths out there who never um, become um, serial killers, and that's the case with a lot of mental health issues. There are, there are latent conditions for some people, and then something, and it's usually... Um, something in their environment, uh, you know, a psychological trauma that then brings out, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It turns, it turns a mental state into a, into a behaviour, um, if, that, if that puts it in the right sort of context. So something happens in the psychology of the person that, that leads them to enact their attraction. What about the people who have the pedophilia gene but don't commit... Mm. as such. Yep. Yeah, so, and again, you mentioned right at the start of this chat that, that most pedophiles have another paraphilia. Um, that could be something where nobody is being hurt. So they may act out that paraphilia um, and behave in that way. And so the, the sexual attraction to children remains in their lives, but, but from a behavioural point of view, it stays dormant. Um, Normally, those people will have had a better, better life development, a better childhood, not been exposed to sexual violence themselves, not been exposed to domestic violence, um, have a much better control of their own behaviour, much better self-awareness and that, that sense of control. Um, I'm aware of a lot of pedophiles who will actually, shouldn't say a lot, there's a proportion of pedophiles who know that they're doing the wrong thing and they desperately want not to be doing the wrong thing, but the urge is so great that they can't resist it. So, and, and you find that, um, I'm sure when Xanth talked about psychopaths and serial killers, there's usually, there's a, there's a lead up to an event, then there's a cooling off period, then there's a lead up again. You find that a lot with pedophiles. And Peter, what's known about female pedophiles? Yeah, look, they... Proportionally, not near as many female pedophiles as men, but in, in most other respects, they're the same. So um, often the same sort of grooming behaviours. Um, more often than not, although there's, there's still a lot of research being done on this, but um, more often than not, there's no particular like gender-specific. So a female pedophile um, won't necessarily target young boys or young girls. It could be either or both. Um, what, and that's different to male pedophiles who, by and large, target boys up until about the age of 13 and then it starts to shift the other way. So 
as, say, young men, if they're going to commit a sexual assault against a young woman, then that, that sort of the proportion of that turns around in that sort of um, mid-teens years. But up until, up until that sort of onset of puberty, it's typically men committing offences against boys. We've established that they're attracted to young children, mm. but can they also be attracted to adult men and women? Yes. Yeah. So, um, and that could be quite a normal attraction. So they may have a, a, a number of pedophiles will have a very normal sexual relationship with a partner that, and the partner will not know anything about the, the pedophilia, won't believe it when, when it eventually comes out. So those relationships, and again, I'm aware of offenders who have offended um, against their own children, against neighbours' children, the partner is absolutely stunned and thinks we've had a normal, we have a normal um, uh, relationship as a couple, we have a normal sexual relationship, he couldn't possibly be interested in offending against children, but he's doing both. When we looked into Daniel Holdham in Crim 1020, um, the murderer of Carly Pierce and Candace yep. Pierce Stevenson, something that was really interesting is that he had a relationship with multiple women yep. who were often sexually abused as children. As and children. And get them to recount their stories. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and part of his sexual gratification was hearing those stories. So mm -hmm. hearing about their pain, um, quite often people like Holdham will come across to, to his victims as being interested and concerned for them. In fact, what he's doing is getting sexual gratification from hearing about their stories and then eventually uh, quite often, and certainly with Holdem, repeating that kind of behaviour against those people. And I think it's interesting with him as well that um, a, a, lot of his, um, a lot of his partners, his adult partners, still looked quite childlike. Mm. Um, so he was interested in, in girls um, and a lot of his adult partners were st still had that um, look of, um, at the very least, of being in their teens. Yeah, like a baby face. A baby yeah. face, you know, yeah. all that kind of thing. Like a, for want of a better term, a sort of a, like for him, a bit of a cutesy mm -hmm. look, you know. Mm -hmm. So he, that was certainly his attraction. And I think in, in you know, the final case with, um, with Candelise, um, you know, his, his attraction to the child is what led to the attraction to the mum. Yeah. So we could, you know, we could basically, um, he, he had two victims. Mm. Is it common for pedophiles who also have that attraction to adults to have interest in them with, that have the childlike features? Um, look, some, with some, as I said, it's such an individual um, condition. And I mentioned, I think, a minute ago that that I'm aware of one particular um, pedophile. He was a he was a Catholic priest who had victims over a very long period of time. He had a very specific look that he was after. So he could be surrounded by ten boys, for example, whose whose circumstances were identical except for their appearance. What he wanted was the blonde-haired one with the blue eyes, who was probably shyer than the other boys, um, and had a particular. Um, again, for want of a better term, like you know, like the pink-cheeked sort of cutesy look, and um, a bit reticent socially, that would be the one he would go after. Even if there was another one who was probably, in every other practical sense, a an easier victim for him um, to pursue. Some people offend, but they aren't necessarily pedophiles. Can you talk about the difference between those two people? 
Yeah, look, again, it's tricky. And, and not being a psychologist, it's these, these things fascinate me because why a, a, a true pedophile will have this attraction over a prolonged period of time. But there are some opportunists who have another paraphilia. They may have a sexual addiction of some, some variety. And if it happens to be a child this time, then it'll be a child this time. It could be an old person next time. Um, it could be anybody in between. So, yeah, look, it's not, not an area that I've researched a lot, but, but I do know that, um, as I said, there's, there's almost... There is no standard model, apart from those basic criteria in DSM-5, there is so much um, variation in the way these people behave, um, which is one of the things that makes them really hard to, to identify and to, and to convict. Just to use an example, I guess, Richard Ramirez, the night stalker, so yep. he is more of the example of someone who's a sexual offender who That's is right. much more opportunistic in his yep. sexual crimes as opposed to mm. a pedophile, say, for example, in the Catholic Church. Yeah, that's right, yeah. because if my recollection of the night stalker is right. He had um, victims that, that fit all sorts of different criteria. Yep which made it very hard for investigators to pin down the fact that he yeah. actually was a serial killer mm. because they they typically are looking, the investigators are looking for the patterns, like what what's the pattern of this offender? Um, Ramirez didn't have that pattern. Yeah. So, yeah, so as I said, there's not... And it, and it makes a... It's a really important point too, I think, Izzy, that people should never make assumptions about all of this mm. because the assumptions will lead you down a, a blind alley. Yeah. And... and you'll then potentially miss important information. Yeah. You've mentioned a few times throughout this episode that there's a lot of pedophilia within the Catholic Church, and yep. that's well known. There's also within institutions within yep. Hollywood as well. Why do you think it accumulates in these situations? It, it's, that's a really, really important point. I think a lot of this is about people who get into a position of authority over other people who probably have the attraction in the first place. So we've seen in Hollywood, for example, we've seen pedophiles, but we've also seen some horrendous serial sex offenders. So um, Harvey Weinstein um, against female um, actresses. Um, I think it's often a case of people who have this sort of attraction who then find themselves in a position and I think I mentioned this earlier, where they have pretty much unfettered access to whoever their target is and no accountability to anybody and, and a great hold over their victim. So in Weinstein's case, young actresses who wanted to get on, he's a, you know, one of the world's most famous Hollywood producers, if I want to get into the movies, I'm going to have to do this. That's different to children, but with children, you usually find it's somebody that has a position of authority over that child, who has a potentially has a position of authority over the child's family, or would never be suspected by the family, and the child effectively is is defenceless. Um, I think up until relatively recently, if a child even said that Uncle Fred was molesting them or Father Jim was molesting them, they wouldn't be believed. I think that's one of the important things that's happened over the last few years is that because people are now much more aware of the extent of this problem, that if Uncle Fred is exhibiting those behaviours that we talked about earlier, um, you know, he's a bit too touchy with the kids, 
Um, and how many people have seen that in their own families? You know, there's there's uh, one errant relative that's always wanting, you know, wanting to hug. It's always the girls or it's always the boys or he makes people uncomfortable, but nobody ever says anything. So I think people are much more aware, which is which I think is is a great thing. Yeah. But people then need to speak up and yeah. do something about it. Don't just say, oh, that's Uncle Fred. Um, yeah, Uncle Fred's doing the wrong mm. thing. So I guess what you're saying there is that they utilise their authority over mm. the children and even though people might be aware of it, they're afraid to speak up yep. because of the consequences? Yes, quite often that's the case. Or if it's not their own child, or even if it is their own child, they'll extract their own child from, the, from that environment but won't say anything to other people who... who they know deep down, are also in that environment. So, you know, there was, I, I can't think of his name, but uh, back in the in the 60s, I think it was, when the Black Panther movement was very active in the United States, that one of the leaders there said that if if you are not part of the solution to a, to a social issue, then you will inevitably become part of the problem. And I think that's how things like pedophilia in the Catholic Church for example, became so rampant because people knew but didn't want to say anything. Families knew that something was not quite up, not quite, you know, appropriate in the relationship between Father Fred and, and their child, extracted their own child but didn't say anything. Other, other priests or people in high places in these institutions see something that's a bit off but it's not their job, you know, oh, it's not my job to do that. Or I'll tell my boss and then it's up to him. Mm -hmm. But... But really, people need to take responsibility for their own behaviour with this. Yeah. Now, Peter, you've just won an Order of Australia medal. Yes, Congratulations. thank and you. And that was for your research in this area. Yep. Can you tell us about that, please? Um, yeah, look, it was, it was um, uh, an unexpected, delightful surprise. Um, I was really humbled by it because I think I wouldn't have got, would never have received that award if it wasn't for so many people over such a long period of time who have been very generous with me, um, people who have been victims of childhood sexual assault, people in the media, um, politicians. And look, I was never never much of a fan of politicians, but but our current Attorney General, Mark Speakman, has he has been you know fantastic to me, given me lots of opportunities to contribute to um, law reform in New South Wales. But as I said, without all of those people, I would never have been able to achieve any of that. And and I, I said to somebody recently that now that I've got that award, I feel like I've got to um, you know I've got to make sure every day that I do something that proves I deserve it. So so my ongoing research really is about trying to identify, particularly in big institutions, what is it that corrupts a good idea. So again, using the Catholic Church as my example. What is it about an organisation that, on the face of it, has very solid values, whether you're, whether you're religious or you believe in God or not, but the whole, the whole idea, the whole message of Christianity is about being decent to other people. How does an organisation with those kinds of foundations find itself in, in the middle of such a horrendous scandal where protection of the institution was everything and people could justify literally throwing children to the wolves. So that's, you know, like whatever time I've got left on this planet, <laughs> I think I'll, that's that's an itch that I just have to keep scratching. I need to understand why that's the case. 
I think you winning this award really just shows how far society has come mm. in representing victims. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, it's great. You definitely deserve it. Yeah, thanks, Izzy. And I, I think the other thing that's really significant about it is um, um, the Australian of the Year, Grace Tame, who, you know, is a, a victim of child sexual assault, um, led law reform um, around victims being able to identify themselves. I think, as you say, we've come a long way because that, that to me... That was such an important moment and I think she will be a great Australian of the Year and bring so much attention to this issue. Yeah. For people who feel that they have pedophilic interest, what advice can you give to them? Yeah, look, as we've discussed a fair bit, there's a difference between having the attraction and having the behaviour. And and I'm yet to see anything where people have engaged in pedophilic behaviour where treatment works. But I think if... If people have the attraction and they haven't acted on that, I think they need to get themselves psychiatric assistance because they're not going to resolve the issue on their own. There is no prospect of that in my mind. They must get professional help to try and identify whether that's a a short-term attraction, whether it's a result of something in their own childhood, whether there is a genetic issue there and then what they can do to control that. Like how do they avoid situations because I think a lot of people who say for example someone um, and I think this is fairly typical in the Catholic Church someone who's had a very repressed sexual development then thinks that they they're either attracted to children or they're same-sex attracted where can I hide where will people not notice that I'm attracted to children they'll end up going into professions where there are children and then the, the risk of them st- taking that, that step from attraction to behaviour is much, much greater. So I think, yeah, look, I, I would, anyone that thinks that they have that sort of, like a, a, a sexual attraction to children, they need to get some help. Yeah, the first step is recognising yeah, it. Yeah, recognising yeah. it and getting psychiatric help to yeah. understand exactly what's going on. So you said there's no proven treatments. Not anything that I've seen that is 100% reliable over a long, long period of time. And I've seen so many circumstances. There's a facility in the United States that is full of um, male pedophiles. Most of them have been in that environment for a very, very long time. It's not a jail, um, but they're there against their will. They've effectively or they've had to agree to go to that facility. It's got things like shops and cafes and they get an allowance, but they're locked in. And I'm not aware of anybody. And so part of the deal is that they must undergo treatment. I'm not aware of anybody that's convinced that facility that they're cured, want of a better term. Um, And tragically, the only way we're going to know if someone's cured is to let them out and cross our fingers and hope they don't offend again. Mm -hmm. So it's such a vexed issue, but I don't think... Because this is, a, this is a mental condition, you cannot get rid of the mental condition. And if someone then, the only thing you can do is try and control their behaviour, that is always going to be risky. What further research would you like to see in the future? I think that the issue that we talked about in terms of people's attraction versus that becoming criminal behaviour. What is it, and, and look, we talked about what I think some of those issues are, but what is it that we could do when, when kids are younger to make sure that, that that attraction, if it exists, 
And this is true with so many of these, you know, things like um, psychopaths. Like we usually can look back at their history and say these are the things that triggered that person, you know, triggered that biological um, predisposition into a, a psychological condition or a particular behaviour. I think we need to try and find out what those things are, not, not test people biologically because I don't think that's mm. appropriate either, but across the whole population, try and eliminate the things that, that turn, you know, effectively no child's born evil, I don't believe, mm. but they've got the potential to be. And, and look, maybe some people will disagree with me and say, well, some people are born evil, nothing you can do is going to change that. But let's see if we can work out what the behaviours are from, from day one that can, that can stop most of those people from ever acting out. I find this area to be really interesting. Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah. And when I was doing research for this podcast and, you know, asking people that I knew what questions would you mm. like to you know the answers to, as soon as I said the word pedophile, they said they didn't want to know about it. Mm. Why do you think people should know about it? Well, because so many people have been victims of, of pedophiles, of sexual assault when they're kids. And I can tell you that people, I've heard so many times people who are uninformed say, it happened a long time ago, why don't you just get over it? But you can't say to somebody who was sexually assaulted, um, whether it was once or over a period of years, you can't say, just get over it. There is a, there is a, a change in that person's psychology, that child's psychology, their ability to trust adults, their own sexual development has been changed. For example, uh, anyone that's been sexually assaulted by an adult while they were a child, they don't get to decide who their first sexual encounter is going to be with. Somebody else decided that. So it fundamentally changes their psychology. If you ignore that, then we've got people who are living lives that are tormented. We can't, we can't do that. But also, if we ignore that, then we're not going to stop it happening to the, to the next generation of kids. I made sure, like, I, I knew what to look out for with my kids. My kids know what to look out for with their kids. We need to stop children from being hurt mm. like this. Mm. And I know there's so many issues in the world for us to deal with, but this is my issue. Yeah. And I couldn't sleep if I thought that I wasn't doing my bit to try and make sure that children are safe. Yeah, it's kind of just... You know, as you said, there's so many issues in the world, but mm. if you can make the effort to protect your yeah, children. That's right. Yeah, and by educating yourself yeah. about pedophilia, yeah. you know, you're helping in your own way. That's right. Yeah, little things. If everyone does a little thing in a positive direction, then that will make a big impact. Yeah, that's right. You know, if yeah. everyone says, well, hang on, I think that person, that, you know, that swing in instructor or that, that tennis coach or that priest or teacher, there's something a bit off in their behaviour... I need to do something about that, then if everybody did that, then we'd be making a huge dent into this problem. Peter, is there anything else that you would like to add to today's episode? No, Izzy, I th thank you very much for, for your interest. I, like, my only concern, I guess, is that in doing this podcast, you know, we talk for, we talk for half an hour and, and so many of these questions, like, I, could, I feel like I could talk about each question for days. You know, they're so complex. But, I'm, yeah, look, it's... It's a real passion of mine. As I said, I, I couldn't sleep nights if I didn't believe that I was doing everything I could within my power to make sure that every child has a good, safe upbringing. Um, and I, look, I, I know the people who listen to this podcast probably share 
that same sort of worldview. So I just encourage people, keep doing your bit. Um, make sure you look after yourself. And I'm like, sometimes I get called a bit hypocritical about that, telling other people to look after themselves <laughs> and, uh, and have a bit of a break because I don't, um, I don't do much of that myself. But, yeah, look, I'm, I just think whatever your passion is, particularly any issue around social justice or psychology, caring about other people, stick with it. Do what you do, do it well, and do make sure you look after yourself because if you get sick, then you can't help anybody. Thank you so much, not only for coming on the podcast today, but for everything you do for us here at the university and Australia-wide. Mm, thank you. Yeah, thank it's, you. Look, it's a great pleasure and, and I couldn't do anything else. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks a lot. And just as a final question, Peter, what's your go-to hot drink? Um, flat white. Flat white. Yep, strong. Our sponsors at Espresso Warriors Katara could certainly hook you up. Well, there with you a go. Strong flat yeah, excellent. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Izzy. You've been listening to the Yoan Crim podcast, run by the University of Newcastle's Criminology and Criminal Justice Society, hosted by Isabella Krebert, featuring this week's guest Peter Gogarty, and sponsored by Espresso Warriors Katara. Special thank you to Corey Di Pasquale for composing the podcast theme music, to Tamika Hillebrand, Ryan Crew, Sabina Hudson and Shay Kleinian for their administrative assistance and support. I'm your host, Isabella Krebert, and I'll be back with another episode on April 19th. In the meantime, please like the UON CCJS on Facebook and Instagram. <laughs>